In October 1920, Amon de Valera, the president of Dahl Aaron, the Irish National Assembly, was on his 18-month tour of the United States. News swept around the world that Terence McSweeney, the Republican activist, had died after a 74-day hunger strike. De Valera and his supporters quickly organized a protest rally at the Polo Grounds in New York. The stadium was so crowded that 20,000 people had to be turned away. A fascinating incident was reported in the middle of that rally. As De Valera took the stage, quote, Three Hindus, each wearing a brilliantly hued turban, were seen rushing across the field from the opposite side of the park. Irish and Indian emblems which they carried give a picturesque touch to the scene. Reaching the main speaker stand, the Hindus, led by Salindra Nath Ghost, organizer of the Friends for Freedom for India, wrapped half a dozen banners about Mr. Dave Valera. This was reported in local papers, and it takes a moment to get beyond the journalist's obvious delight in reporting on anything so exotic as turbans. But let's put that bit of racism aside for the moment. This was not a spontaneous demonstration of colonial sympathy. During his time in the U.S., De Valera had multiple meetings with the Friends of Freedom for India, a pro-Indian independence organization that had been founded in 1916. In fact, in February 1920, De Valera gave the keynote speech at the Friends of Freedom for India meeting. This speech is worth quoting at length because of the way De Valera rips to shreds the British justification for colonization. Just to make this quote clear, De Valera began his speech by talking about a damning 1901 book that used official British statistics to expose the hardship in India imposed by their imperial overlords. Okay, here's what De Valera said. And again, this is several paragraphs of text. Is there any man or woman here tonight or anywhere in the wide world who really believes that it is in order to benefit the people of India that Britain insists on holding India against the Indian people's will? Do you think it is because the British really think that they can govern the people of India better than the people of India can govern themselves? Do you think they keep on in India because they want to improve the conditions of the Indians morally or materially? Do you think it is because they really regard the Indians as backward people who need their assistance to lead them to the way of prosperity and civilization that they persist in remaining there despite the people of India? Should any person think in this wise and should be inclined to credit British professions of this sort, I would ask them what imperial nation has yet shown itself so selfless, so generous, so apostolic, and I would ask them in particular when or where has the British Empire shown such altruism? We do not need books to convince us that the imperial motive is greed. We do not need books to convince us that no nation has ruled another well. I do not think anyone anywhere needs a book of facts to be convinced that the British have bled India to death, not only in wealth, but in actual blood. The books tell us that Britain has plundered India. Of course she has plundered India. What else is she in India for? This is the year that was, 1919. 
Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and I really appreciate that you're listening. We are deep into our look at colonies, mandates, and independence movements in 1919. We'll have two more episodes after this one on this theme, one on the former Ottoman Empire and one a more broad view of other parts of the world. Last week, we talked about the Irish independence movement, and this week we're going to focus on India, Britain's most precious colony, the jewel in the imperial crown. Let's begin by setting the stage. How did Britain end up controlling India in the first place? The British first arrived in India under the auspices of the East India Company, which received a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth I in 1600. The company was a strange sort of private enterprise that annexed sovereign states and maintained its own army. Imagine if Amazon had its own military or Google. It's so seriously wrong. Anyway, over time, the East India Company either co-opted Indian rulers or seized territory outright. By 1856, it controlled the majority of the subcontinent. Company rule was harsh. The British imposed crippling taxes, systemized injustice, and routinely violated the norms and beliefs of India's various cultures and religions. This was brought home in 1857 when a new rifle was introduced to Indian troops. Many thousands of Indians served in East India Company armed forces, and of course they carried weapons. The new Enfield rifle employed a cartridge that the user bit open before ramming it down the barrel. The cartridges used in these rifles were greased with a tallow that, it was rumored, contained either pig's fat or cow's fat or both. You might as well have smeared them with excrement. Cows are sacred to Hindus. Pigs are taboo for Muslims. For either to put their fat in their mouth was nauseating and a gross violation of their religious beliefs. The British denied the fats were used in the cartridges, but it didn't matter. The rumor stuck. Revolts broke out across the country in what is known as the Indian Rebellion or the Indian Mutiny. Indians rioted and attacked British compounds. The violence was sometimes horrific. At one nightmare incident in Kanpur, 120 women and children were massacred by butchers brought in for the job. This is not a bit of metaphorical language. Actual professional butchers who spent their days cutting meat killed women and children. This was only one massacre among many. About 6,000 Europeans were killed. When the British regained control, their revenge was fearsome. The favorite form of execution for captured rebels was to, and I'm sorry, this is gruesome, take out your earbuds or mute the audio for a few seconds if you don't want to hear it. Okay, everybody ready? They would tie them to the mouth of a cannon loaded only with gunpowder and blow them to pieces. This was not only a horrible way to die, it was also an attack on the religious practices of both Hindus and Muslims who needed the body of the deceased to perform their final rites. It was also a terrifying piece of theater since generally the British would line up Indian prisoners and force them to watch the executions. 
Roughly 800,000 Indians died in the rebellion and in the famines and epidemics that followed. It was brutal, but from the British perspective, effective. The lesson the British chose to learn from the rebellion was that you could never really trust Indians. They might seem friendly, but without warning or provocation, they would slaughter your family. The other lesson the British took from the rebellion was that the only way to rule India was through overwhelming force. Afterward, the British decided that Maybe, just possibly, it wasn't a good idea for a private corporation responsible only to shareholders to rule an entire nation. Control of India was transferred to the British government. But the British Raj, as the government was known, could never stop looking over its shoulder. They could never forget that as rulers, they were far outnumbered by those they ruled. If the Indians wanted, they could again rise up and kill every British man, woman, and child in their midst. A strange sort of society evolved out of this atmosphere of fear. Many British, the so-called Anglo-Indians, lived in India most of their lives. Indian servants cooked their food and Indian nannies raised their children. But these relationships were rotten at their core, like the relationships between white slaveholders and enslaved African Americans in the antebellum South. It was twisted by disdain, disgust, and distrust. George Orwell, who worked in India from 1922 to 1927 and wrote about his experience in his novel Burmese Days, described it like this. With Indians, there must be no loyalty, no real friendship, affection, even love. Yes, Englishmen do often love Indians, native officers, forest rangers, hunters, clerks, servants. Even intimacy is allowable at the right moment, but alliance, partnership, never. Always, in any encounter between Indian and British, the Indian had to demonstrate submission and inferiority. There was a whole culture around performing the racial hierarchy. Particularly important was the ritual subservience that had to accompany any interaction between Indian men and British women. British women were to be treated as sacred and never to be insulted by word, deed, or even look. The ultimate fear, rarely spoken since it was so terrifying, was of rape, that a black man would violate a white woman's body. This same terror has stalked the United States, and we'll discuss it in a few episodes when we talk about racial violence in America. In India, any hint of contact between Indian men and white women was dangerous, disastrous. I've relied heavily on Kim Wagner's book, Amritsar 1919, in writing this episode. And Wagner includes an account of a fascinating incident that shows how powerful was this taboo. An Anglo-Indian woman, one Mrs. Montgomery, was one day walking along a path at night accompanied by a male Indian servant carrying a lamp. She was suffering severe pain from about a facial neuralgia and described herself as quite stupid with pain. Suddenly, the servant stopped and shouted that a dangerous snake was lying across the path. Mrs. Montgomery barely heard him and kept walking. Here's how she described what happened next, quote, then the servant did a thing absolutely without precedent in India. He touched me. He put his hand on my shoulder and pulled me back. 
Of course, if he hadn't done that, I should undoubtedly have been killed. But I didn't like it all the same and got rid of him soon after. So he saved her life and she fired him. However much they distrusted Indians, the British loved India. Riches poured from India into British bank accounts. Recent research taking a close look at British trade during the Raj showed that the British drained a total of $45 trillion from India between 1765 and 1938. The phenomenon of Englishmen becoming fantastically rich in India was so common that the language needed a word to describe them. They were known as nabobs. No wonder British foreign policy hinged on protecting India at all costs. The British fought three wars in Afghanistan to guard access to India, worried that Russia would invade from the north. They fought other wars to maintain control over the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. They took control of Egypt and Cyprus to protect access through the Suez Canal. Of course, the British never admitted their interest in India was an issue of power and money. The standard British line was that the colonization of India didn't make money for Britain. It actually cost money to maintain the Raj. But it was a cost the British were willing to pay to bring the priceless gift of British culture to the subcontinent. Did not British Prime Minister William Gladstone describe how the British had undertaken, quote, a most arduous but noble duty, unquote, of spreading Western civilization to the Indians? Whatever, the fact was that the British needed India, especially in 1914. Indian grain helped keep the British alive, and more than two million Indian combatants and support staff served overseas in the Great War. The small but growing Indian nationalist movement supported Indian involvement in the Great War wholeheartedly. They reasoned that if Indian soldiers served honorably for Britain, the British would be grateful. One nationalist wrote, quote, When the war is over, we cannot doubt that the king emperor will, as a reward for her glorious defense of the empire, pin upon her breast the jeweled medal of self-government within the empire. The nationalist movement dated to the decades after the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Initially, Indian nationalists didn't seek full independence, but rather an active role in governing the country. They hoped eventually for autonomy, the same sort of home rule that many Irish nationalists sought before the Easter Rising. In fact, Indian nationalists closely followed events in Ireland and adopted many of the same strategies as the Irish nationalists. By 1916, the independence movement was well-organized and powerful enough to worry the British. Even hardcore imperialists in London recognized that India's contribution to the war effort demanded a response. It seemed for a while that the war was helping India advance toward greater autonomy. The Montague-Chelmsford reforms, named for the British politicians who introduced them, were announced in 1917 and planned for implementation in 1919. They called for, quote, the gradual development of self-governing institutions with a view to the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the British Empire. That's a mouthful, but probably the most important word in that statement is gradual. The British believed that Indians were incapable of governing themselves and would need the benevolent guidance of their colonial overlords for some time. 
But in the fullness of time, they might achieve autonomy, but as part of the British Empire, of course. Just like Ireland, India remaining within the empire was non-negotiable. Indian nationalists were deeply disappointed at such half-hearted measures. They felt betrayed by the British, who had taken Indian soldiers and Indian grain, but wanted to give nothing in return. Matters were about to get worse. When the war ended, the Raj faced the prospect of all of those Indian soldiers re-entering civilian life. The primary emotion among authorities was not gratitude for their service, but fear that this well-trained army would return expecting better treatment and fairer government. In a few episodes, we're going to discuss the return of African-American soldiers to the United States after the war, and there's some interesting parallels here. Both Britain and the U.S. were terrified that veterans would not passively return to lives of oppression and injustice. Furthermore, the British believed returning soldiers were susceptible to the persuasion of radical nationalist agitators. They were terrified that Bolshevik agents were planning a widespread coordinated rebellion in India and beyond. Now, just to be clear, there was no vast Bolshevik conspiracy in India. Yes, the Bolsheviks wanted to export the communist revolution to the rest of the world. But in 1919, that was only a distant dream. The Russian Bolsheviks were just trying to survive, what with the whites and the greens and the Czechoslovaks and the allies. The Raj nevertheless clung to this theory and interpreted any isolated protests as evidence of the reach of this imagined red conspiracy. For example, Back in 1915, a group known as the Ghadar Party tried to organize an uprising in Punjab. The Ghadar Party was a fascinating group. It was founded in San Francisco, of all places, by Indian immigrants to the west coast of the United States and Canada. When the Great War started and the majority of British troops were pulled out of India, the Ghadar Party decided the time was right for rebellion. Thousands of Ghadar Party members returned to India to kick off an uprising. Their goal was very similar to that of the Irish in the Easter Rising. They hoped that a few coordinated acts of rebellion would prompt a nationwide revolution. Just as with the Easter Rising, the Germans got involved providing funds. And just as with the Easter Rising, the British brutally suppressed the uprising. Now, this rebellion had nothing to do with the Bolsheviks, and it had been completely stamped out by 1919. Nevertheless, the British considered it evidence of the conspiracy. Further evidence was supplied by uprisings, protests, and attacks in Egypt, Afghanistan, Palestine, and Iraq. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks. And in Ireland, the independence movement was gaining steam and attacks on the Royal Irish Constabulary were growing. It seemed like it couldn't possibly be a coincidence that everyone all around the world wanted to overthrow British rule at exactly the same time. Surely someone was pulling the strings and coordinating all of these movements. 
The British became so convinced of the existence of this conspiracy that they framed everything they saw in its context. They were completely unable to recognize genuine grievances when they saw them. From the British perspective, Indians couldn't possibly be protesting high taxes and a discriminatory legal system. No, they were acting out their part in a nefarious plot to overthrow the entire empire. How then to stop it? During the war, the British had imposed sweeping restrictions on civil rights in India, but the laws authorizing those restrictions had ended with the war. So the Raj prepared new legislation in the spring of 1919 that would extend repression going forward. The Rowlett Act, named after the judge who introduced it, allowed press censorship, arrests without warrants, indefinite detention without trial, and juryless secret trials. Indians were furious. With one hand, the British promised autonomy, and with the other hand, they took away liberty. Protests spread across the country. This created a dangerous cycle. The British imposed restrictions to stop the imagined conspiracy. Indians protested the restrictions. The British interpreted these protests as further evidence of the conspiracy and further tightened restrictions. Things threatened to spiral out of control. If you know nothing else about the Indian independence movement, you know one name, Gandhi. So let's talk about Mohandas K. Gandhi, whom we last encountered in this podcast recovering from a bad bout of Spanish flu. Gandhi was born in Gujarat in western India, trained as an attorney, and spent the early part of his career in South Africa, where he became an activist for the rights of Indian immigrants. It was in South Africa that he developed many of his core ideas, most critically the principle of nonviolent resistance. Nonviolence, in Gandhi's view, is not the same as pacifism. It is not in any way passive or resigned. Nonviolence is an active, engaged form of resistance that requires enormous courage and self-control from its practitioners. It is a way for the powerless to confront the powerful by peacefully but persistently confronting injustice. The term Gandhi used was satyagraha, which translates to something like truth force or holding on to the truth. I apologize for my errors in pronouncing Indian names and terms. I've listened to a lot of recordings on YouTube trying to get it right, but I know I'm making mistakes and I am sorry for that. Gandhi returned to India in 1915, determined to employ his principles to seek independence for India. He was convinced the struggle would be difficult, but not impossible. He believed that if British officials were brought to understand how unjust their policies were, they would change them. In time, they would grant India independence. He had, at this time, great faith in British justice. But Gandhi was concerned with more than politics. Satyagraha was tied up with Gandhi's other beliefs, such as the importance of self-control. 
He himself lived an ascetic life, eating a vegetarian, almost vegan diet and practicing celibacy, despite remaining married to his wife. He was as concerned with social and economic reforms as political ones. He promoted economic independence for India, and it urged the revival of traditional Indian crafts, such as spinning and weaving. He refused to wear any clothes but hand-spun, hand-woven garments in traditional Indian style, and encouraged his followers to burn their European suits and hats. Gandhi was seriously into spinning as a practice, a skill, and a symbol of Indian self-reliance. As well as spending time every day at the spinning wheel himself, he pushed spinning on almost everyone he met and nagged at friends who were less than enthusiastic about taking up the craft. He even tried to convince the wife of the newly appointed British governor of Bombay to take up spinning. The lady in question was the Honorable Blanche Isabel Lloyd, and as well as being married to the governor, she was the granddaughter of an earl and served as maid of honor to the queen. The thought of her sitting on the floor spinning cotton is ludicrous and shows that Gandhi had no respect for rank, but did possess a sense of humor. Gandhi wasn't perfect. For a man with enormous empathy, he was blind to the needs and wants of his immediate family. He had a traditional patriarchal view of the man as the head of the family and ordered around his sons and his wife without any regard for their feelings or wishes. I don't say this to try to take him down a notch, rather to point out that he was a real person and not a saint. Or perhaps he was a saint, and saints can be really annoying for those who have to live with them. Gandhi placed impossible demands on everyone around him. He felt justified that those demands were the right thing to do, and furthermore asked no more of others than he did of himself. Fair enough, but just because you've decided to live on nuts and fruits, get up at four in the morning every day, and never have sex, doesn't mean that everyone you meet is going to want to do the same. Or, I would argue, that they should have to. Gandhi's first few years back in India were devoted to fairly small-scale operations. He supported indigo farmers campaigning for better wages and helped peasants in a region hit by devastating floods. Nevertheless, his reputation as a charismatic leader and friend to the poor spread rapidly into every corner of India. By 1918, he was well on his way to becoming the preeminent leader of the nationalist movement. He was sidelined for several months in late 1918 by his encounter with the Spanish flu, and when the Rowlett Act was introduced, he was only beginning to regain his health. To Gandhi, the Rowlett Act was not only an unjust restriction of Indian rights, it was also an opportunity to introduce his principles to a national audience. He was frankly appalled by the act, which he declared, quote, was so restrictive of human liberty that no self-respecting person or no self-respecting nation could allow such legislation to appear on its regular statute book. There is no course left open but to resist that law to the utmost. And so on February 8, 1919, Gandhi proposed an Indian-wide campaign against the Rowlett Act. He and his supporters signed a Satyagraha pledge, agreeing to a program of non-cooperation with the British government until the act was withdrawn. 
Gandhi's call for action prompted an immediate response. Mass strikes and protests were held in Delhi, Karachi, Calcutta, and Madras. One community where protests against the act were particularly heated was Amritsar in Punjab. Punjab is a region that spans today's eastern Pakistan and northwestern India. It was traditionally the home of fierce warriors. Three-fifths of British Indian Army troops were from Punjab. Amritsar had a population of roughly 152,000. About 45% of the residents were Muslims, 40% were Hindus, and 13% were Sikhs. As a side note, I read up on it, and the Sikh community prefers this pronunciation to Sikh, which I frequently heard in the past, so I'm going with Sikh. Despite their relatively small numbers, Sikhs played an important role in Amritsar since the city was founded by a Sikh guru and is home to the most important Sikh shrine. The Darbar Sahib, often called the Golden Temple in English, is a gold-plated sanctum in which the holy scriptures of the faith are kept and prayers continually chanted. The temple sits in the middle of a large square lake reached by a narrow footbridge. Check out the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com, to see a photo. It is a gorgeous site. Amritsar was a manufacturing center and an agricultural hub. However, by the end of the war, the community was struggling economically. British demand for grain sent food prices soaring, while dropping demand for consumer goods set wages falling. Then the region was hit by the flu epidemic. A million or more people died in Punjab. Amritsar had a small but dedicated nationalist community, and when Gandhi announced the Satyagraha, they began organizing protests. One form of protest proposed by Gandhi quickly gained support. This was the Hartal. A Hartal was intended to combine a general strike in which all workplaces, offices, shops voluntarily shut down, combined with a day of prayer and fasting for participating individuals. The first Hartal in Amritsar was called for March 30th and received substantial support from all members of the Amritsar community. Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs all participated in the protest. Gandhi called for a nationwide Hartal for April 6th, and Amritsar enthusiastically complied. That day, the marketplace was empty, shops were shuttered, and businesses quiet. In the afternoon, tens of thousands of Indians attended a protest meeting at Jallianwala Bagh, a large open space in the middle of the city. The British authorities in Amritsar were furious and frankly terrified. The unity of the community was particularly alarming. The British pursued a policy of divide and conquer in India and encouraged religious strife wherever possible. Furthermore, resistance to the British seemed to be spreading. Clearly, these acts of civil resistance were coordinated. What else did the natives have planned? Were the Bolsheviks behind the whole thing? Would it be the mutiny all over again? Meanwhile, Gandhi was worried. He had received a letter from activists in Amritsar expressing concern that neither they nor the people of the city truly understood Satyagraha. This is undoubtedly true. People shouted Gandhi's name in the streets, but when asked, only a few knew exactly who Gandhi was or what he taught. Some said they weren't sure if Gandhi was a person or a thing. 
Only a handful understood the finer points of nonviolent resistance. It was extraordinarily difficult to create a nationwide mass movement that followed Gandhi's strict principles, and cracks were already showing. In Delhi, police fired tear gas and rubber bullets into a crowd of protesters, and they responded by throwing sticks and stones. The police then switched to live bullets, and at least eight people were killed. Gandhi was horrified. It was upsetting for the British to use force, but to be expected. For Gandhi's followers to respond with violence was against all he stood for. So when Gandhi received a letter from Amritsar explaining the community's difficulties and asking that he travel to the city to offer his guidance, he immediately decided to make the journey. The British were tracking Gandhi's movements, and when he boarded a train on April 8th, they decided to stop him. At a station outside of Delhi, police served an order prohibiting him from entering Punjab and sending him back to his home in Ahmadabad. In Amritsar, local authorities decided simply keeping Gandhi away wasn't enough. They decided to remove the two most prominent nationalist leaders in Amritsar from the city. On April 10th, the two men were arrested and whisked out of town. When word spread of the deportations, Indians in Amritsar were furious. An enormous crowd formed and marched to the bridge that divided the British enclave from the rest of the city. Troops tried to force them back. The crowd started throwing bricks and British officers opened fire, killing at least 10 people. Furious mobs spread through the city. Several banks were looted and the English bankers killed. Shop windows were broken. People were shouting. Rumors flew that the wells were poisoned. It was chaos. In one baffling incident, a white female doctor named Isabel Mary Easton put herself and her staff in serious risk from the mob. Easton was in charge of the Municipal Female Hospital, which was located in the heart of the city and where she spent her days caring for Native women. She closed the hospital when she learned of the uprising, and she and an assistant went up on the roof to monitor events. As they watched, an injured man was brought to a medical dispensary located right across the street. Dozens of people crowded around as a doctor tried to extract a bullet from a man's thigh. Suddenly, Easton called out, shouting that the injured Native man deserved it, and it served him right. It was a cruel taunt and a stupid one. The mob hadn't even been aware of her presence, but now they stormed the hospital. Shouting, kill the English, they broke into the hospital and began searching for Easton. Her Native assistants hid her in a toilet on the roof, and she crouched there in the dark for some time. Finally, the mob headed away, and again the Indian staff came to Easton's rescue. They brought her a burqa and helped her blacken her feet with ink so her pale pink English toes wouldn't attract attention. They rushed her to a neighboring house and kept her hidden there until evening. This is such a strange story. What was this woman's problem? She cared for Indian women all day, but then taunted a wounded man in the street. Apparently, she thought as a white woman, she could say anything she wanted and no one would touch her. The fact she escaped in a burqa is a brilliant irony that she seems not to have appreciated. Meanwhile, another English woman was targeted in another part of the city. And this is a much sadder story. 
Marcella Sherwood was a 45-year-old teacher and missionary school superintendent. She had ridden alone on a bicycle into the heart of Amritsar to close down her schools and make sure her students got home safely. She was well-known in the neighborhood and apparently well-liked. However, that afternoon, she ran into an angry crowd. She did nothing to antagonize them, but she was seized, kicked, beaten, and left unconscious. Finally, the mob ran away, and locals were able to carry her to the doctor. Sherwood survived and recovered fully, but the incident deeply shocked the British. The bodies of English women were sacrosanct. The deepest fears of the Anglo-Indians were awoken. The evening of April 10th, the mob dispersed, but British anger was just beginning to mount. Over the next two days, they rushed troops into Amritsar. The soldiers were headed by Brigadier General R.E.H. Dyer, commanding officer of the 45th Brigade. Dyer had been born and bred in India and served all over the empire, including in Ireland, and commanded troops on the Western Front. He was a stern soldier with a strong sense of duty and loyalty to the empire. The panicked British fell victim to crazy rumors. It was said that armies of villagers were marching onto Amritsar and that mutinies had broken out in Lahore and other cities. Serious plans were developed to bomb Amritsar and Lahore from the air. The tone of British reaction was both furious and incredulous that the Indians had dared to defy them. The senior civil authority for Amritsar reported in honest shock the temper of the people was actually defiant. Another time he declared the city impenitently hostile. Meanwhile, among Indians, April 11th was a quiet day dedicated to funerals. The British didn't interrupt these rituals. As the English soldier had said in Ireland at the procession for Thomas Ashe, the British gave the natives free hand with their religious rites. Two key decisions were made the night of April 12th, one by the British and one by the Indians. First, General Dyer banned all public meetings. Second, Amritsar's nationalists decided to hold another hartal and public meeting at Jallianwala Bagh the following day. These two decisions set in motion a horrifying train of events. Both sides spent the morning of April 13th spreading the news. A procession of police, Indian officials, and British officers toured the city publicly, announcing the ban on public meetings. For some reason, however, the procession neglected entire portions of the city, and thousands with emirates are never heard about the ban. News about the Hartal and the meeting spread much more effectively, and almost everyone knew of the protesters' plans. That day, Amritsar was teeming with people. It was the day of the cattle and horse fair, and farmers had crowded in from the countryside. It was also Baisaki, the most important Sikh festival of the year, that marked the creation of the Sikh community. It drew thousands and thousands of pilgrims every year. By early afternoon, most shops, factories, and offices were closed for the Hartal. All of these people were crowded into the city, and between 10 and 30,000 of them ended up in Jallianwala Bagh. So what is Jallianwala Bagh? It is sometimes described as a park, but that is a generous description. It wasn't a landscaped area, just an open space surrounded by tall buildings, accessed by a few narrow passageways from the surrounding streets. It held a few trees, a small temple, and a well, 
It was a public space where children played and men gathered to talk. Few women were in the bog. Indian society was heavily segregated by gender. About 4 p.m., news reached General Dyer that the meeting was in progress. Furious but resolved, Dyer saw the meeting as a deliberate challenge to the government forces. If the British did not meet this challenge, all hell would break loose. In Dyer's words, quote, If it were not dispersed effectively, with sufficient impression upon the designs and arrogance of the rebels and their followers, we should be overwhelmed during the night or the next day by a combination of the city gangs and of the still formidable multitude from the villages. Again, I just want to emphasize, no one was planning to overwhelm anyone, and there were no villagers ready to fall upon Amritsar. Dyer ordered his troops to load up. Ninety armed men headed into the city along with two armored cars mounted with machine guns. They drove into Amritsar and advanced on Jolly and Walla Bog. There they realized the entrance to the space was too small to allow the armored cars to enter, so the troops marched through a narrow entranceway and formed two lines facing the crowd. Dyer saw no need to issue a warning. He had banned public gatherings, and the natives had defied him. They had brought this on themselves. Dyer ordered his men to open fire. The roar of the rifles filled the air. People dropped to the ground, some dead before they fell, others screaming in pain. The crowd surged toward the few narrow exits. The soldiers targeted fire where the crowd was thickest. Some began to climb the high walls to escape. Shots took down the climbers one by one. Firing continued for more than ten minutes. Ten disciplined, precise, murderous minutes. Dyer finally ordered his men to cease fire. He later said, quote, I fired and continued to fire until the crowd dispersed, and I continue this the least amount of firing which would produce the necessary moral and widespread effect it was my duty to produce. There was no question of undue severity. Then his soldiers turned around and marched back out again. There were bodies everywhere. Word of the massacre flew through town. Frantic people rushed to find their friends and relatives before the 8 p.m. curfew. Many had no choice but to go home not knowing what had happened to their loved ones. Residents who lived next to the bog described hearing the wounded cry for help all night. The next day, Dyer sat down and wrote up a report claiming between 200 and 300 people had been killed. This estimate was in no way based on counting the dead. Dyer knew his men had fired 1,650 rounds. His experience in France told him that one man killed for every six shots was a reasonable estimate. Dyer apparently did not consider relevant the difference between a French battlefield and an enclosed space filled with helpless unarmed civilians. To this day, no one knows how many people died at Jolly and Walla Bog, but a widely repeated number is about 1,500. The number of wounded is impossible to guess. Among the dead were dozens of children. As far as the British were concerned, it hardly mattered, because Dyer's actions had the intended effect. The rebellion collapsed. There had never been a rebellion, but whatever. The British ordered all shops and offices to reopen. They did. British reprisals were imposed. They were not resisted. 
Dyer believed it was only appropriate to punish the community. Quote, Emritzer has behaved very badly, he said, as if the city was a naughty toddler that needed a timeout and a good talking to. Hundreds of Indians were arrested, homes and shops were searched, many punishments were intended to humiliate Indians and assert British superiority. All persons in the city, for example, were made to salam to every Englishman. To salam is to bow deeply with the right hand on the forehead. If a salam was deemed inadequately reverential, the offender could be arrested and made to practice salaming for hours under the afternoon sun under military supervision. The worst punishments were intended as retribution for the attack on the English school superintendent, Miss Sherwood. A flogging post was erected outside of the road where she had been attacked, and dozens of people were publicly beaten. But this display of violence did not adequately avenge an attack on a white woman. Dyer hit on a solution. He blocked the road at both ends and ordered that the only way an Indian could pass down the street was on all fours. Dyer thought that no one would debase themselves in such a way and that the road would effectively be closed. He never considered that people might live on the street or happen to pass that way without knowing about the order. Dozens of men were forced to crawl the 200 yards down the roadway on all fours, lying flat on their bellies. The soldiers guarding the street kicked and hit the crawlers, laughing as the Indians struggled. Women who lived on the street were effectively trapped in their homes and soon ran out of food and water. The British later tried to poo-poo the crawling order, saying it was only in effect for five days and not that big of a deal. But it was a big deal. Strict press censorship was in effect in Punjab, and news of the massacre only slowly leaked out. Gandhi wasn't fully aware of events for several weeks. He was well informed, however, of violence in other cities. For example, in Ahmadabad, where Gandhi had his headquarters, rioting broke out on April 10th. Indians attacked Europeans, burned government buildings, and looted the homes of officials. Troops were called in, shots were fired, and at least 23 people were killed. Gandhi was shocked and dismayed by the violence. He realized the majority of Indians had not understood the principles of Satyagraha or not accepted them. In his name and the name of his movement, people had lashed out in his own city. On April 18th, he announced the suspension of the Satyagraha. He hoped it could be resumed in time, but only when the spirit of disciplined nonviolence had been cultivated among his followers. By summer, Gandhi and the other nationalists knew the truth about Amritsar and were eager to expose the truth. The British were just as eager to keep it under wraps. It wasn't until October that they allowed Gandhi to visit the Punjab. It took about as long for authorities in London to realize that something awful had happened in Amritsar, something much worse than the colonial authorities had claimed. Two committees were established at about the same time to investigate what had happened at Jallianwala Bagh. One was a British commission chaired by the former Solicitor General of Scotland. Another was an entirely Indian commission created by the Indian National Congress that included Gandhi. He spent most of November and December touring Punjab and talking to witnesses both of the massacre and of other instances of repression in the area. 
When the two reports were released, they came to very different conclusions. The Indian report recommended that multiple officers be relieved of duty, the Viceroy to India recalled, and major reforms carried out. The British report emphasized the imagined conspiracy threat and portrayed General Dyer as, at worst, overwhelmed by events. Quote, in the face of a great crisis, an officer may be thrown temporarily off the balance of his judgment. Overall, the actions of the British were entirely necessary as they were, quote, largely responsible for quelling a dangerous rising, which might have had widespread and disastrous effects on the rest of India. Nevertheless, the report exploded in London like a bombshell. No amount of government hand-waving could disguise the fact that British soldiers had shut unarmed Indians in cold blood. The public was shocked. One politician thundered in the House of Commons, quote, It has destroyed our reputation in the world. The Germans never did anything worse in Belgium. This damns us for all time. Not everyone agreed. Some British aristocrats were quoted in the press stating, quote, It is a pity we have not a General Dyer in Ireland at the present time. Dyer became the face of Amritsar. When he returned home in May 1920, his fate in the armed services was debated in Parliament. He was variously portrayed as a monster, a hero, and a scapegoat. Finally, a compromise was worked out that allowed him to resign. This was considered unjust by those who considered Dyer the savior of India. The conservative daily paper, The Morning Post, launched a subscription campaign for Dyer and raised enough money for him to live in comfort for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, in India, Amritsar had an effect similar to the Easter Rising on Ireland. Before Amritsar, many Indians would have been satisfied with steady movement toward home rule. Amritsar showed them that all of the British talk about justice and civilization was just talk. At the end of the day, the British would prefer to shoot Indians like fish in a barrel than allow them freedom. Many wealthy, educated Indians had respected the British and aspired to emulate them. After Amritsar, they realized the British weren't worthy of their respect. For example, Motilal Nehru, a prominent Allahabad lawyer, had always been pro-British. He had sent his son Jawaharlal to school at England and forbidden nationalist talk in his house. After Amritsar, Motilal ordered all of his European furniture removed from his house, all of his family's European clothing, all of the suits, dresses, ties, and hats were piled up and set alight. Jawaharlal's daughter's first memory would be of this great bonfire. In time, Jawaharlal Nehru became one of the most important leaders in the Indian independence movement and a close partner with Gandhi. He would serve as India's first prime minister from 1947 until 1964. His daughter Indira, who as a tiny girl had watched her grandfather's bonfire, would become India's first and to date only female prime minister from 1966 to 1977 and again from 1980 until her assassination in 1984. As for Gandhi, he felt betrayed. He had genuinely believed in British justice. Now it was exposed as a lie. 
So what happened next? Gandhi began a new campaign based on non-cooperation with the British. Between 1920 and 1922, he toured the country promoting Hindu-Muslim cooperation, speaking against harsh treatment and segregation of Dalits, the so-called untouchable class in the Hindu caste system, and urging non-cooperation. He organized the Indian National Congress into a powerful nationwide party and continued to promote native crafts such as spinning and weaving. As far as the British were concerned, he crossed the line when he began to call for peasants to stop paying their taxes. On March 10, 1922, Gandhi was arrested for sedition. At the trial eight days later, he simply pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to six years in prison. The independence movement splintered without him. Hindus and Muslims ceased to cooperate. The Indian National Congress split into factions. Protests faltered, and the entire effort juddered to a halt. As far as the British were concerned, they had had a narrow escape. That October, an American journalist interviewed the governor of Bombay, Sir George Lloyd. Lloyd spoke openly about the risk Gandhi had posed, saying, He gave us a scare. His program filled the jails. You can't go on arresting people forever, you know, not when there are 319 million of them. And if they had taken the next step and refused to pay the taxes, God knows where we should have been. Gandhi's was the most colossal experiment in history, and he came within an inch of succeeding. Gandhi wouldn't serve his full prison term. He was rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery for appendicitis in February 1924 and then released. He had a lot of rebuilding to do, but in time he regained his momentum and was more powerful than ever by 1930. It nevertheless took until 1947 for India to achieve independence. The full story extends beyond the reach of this podcast, and I encourage you to read about it. I began this episode with Amon de Valera in the United States, and I want to return to him for a moment. On August 1st, 1919, the Seattle Star ran an article that described a meeting between de Valera and Gopal Singh. Singh was a member of the Ghadar Party, which you'll remember tried to spark a rebellion in Punjab in 1915. In the meeting, Singh presented de Valera with a sword. Critically, this sword was sheathed. Now, I haven't been able to track down any commitment by Singh or the remaining Ghadar party members to nonviolence, but the newspaper article claims that the sheath sword represented, quote, the passive resistance offered Britain by India. However, De Valera then removed the sword from its sheath. Or, as the journalist, clearly enjoying the opportunity to really go to town with his prose, quote, the naked steel of the blade leaped into the sunlight in the hands of De Valera, who believes the use of physical force wholly when used to achieve independence. Now, this was a bit of theater that the journalist, at least, greatly enjoyed. But it does bring up an interesting point about the differing attitudes toward violence in the Indian and Irish independence movements. Sinn Féin had no problem with violence. Yes, some of their methods were nonviolent, the whole business of setting up a shadow government, for example. But that government included an army, as well as a squad of trained assassins. Collins and De Valera clearly believed violence was, if not wholly, at least entirely justified when used to achieve independence. 
Gandhi is remarkable for his embrace of nonviolence, and the events of 1919 make it clear how incredibly difficult that was. It is extraordinarily hard to not react if police hit you, fire tear gas at you, fire bullets, even rubber bullets at you. The human instinct is to pick up a rock and throw it. I get that. What I don't get is shooting in an unarmed crowd of 30,000 people until you run out of bullets. The British tried to explain General Dyer's actions as that of a bad apple, and Amritsar is an aberration. Winston Churchill gave a speech in July 1920 in which he declared the Amritsar massacre, quote, an episode which appears to me without precedent or parallel in the modern history of the British Empire. He went on, it is an extraordinary event, a monstrous event, an event which stands in singular and sinister isolation. But that's not true. Okay, sure, it was rare that the British shot 1,500 people at one go, but violence was part of the colonial system. It was a constant from Cyprus to Egypt, Palestine to Kenya, India to Ireland. Nor was it unique to the British. The French, the Belgians, the Japanese, the Americans, all of them governed their colonies with fear and force. It was the heart of the system. Gandhi recognized this. It was Gandhi who said, We do not want to punish General Dyer. We have no desire for revenge. We want to change the system that produces General Dyer's. It was in some ways easier for the British to deal with someone like Michael Collins or De Valera. They were playing the game by the established rules, using violence upon those who had used it upon them. It is no surprise, I think, that Gandhi enraged the British and left them baffled and affronted in a way that De Valera or Collins never did. By refusing to play the game, he exposed its naked brutality for what it really was. I want to make one last point. As long ago as 1920, people made comparisons between the Amritsar Massacre and Bloody Sunday in Ireland. And there's something to that. Both were instances in which British military forces opened fire without warning on an unarmed crowd. Fourteen people died at the football match at Croke Park in Dublin in November 1920. Each of those deaths is a tragedy and a crime. I do not for a moment debate that. But in Amritsar, more than a hundred times that many likely died. The scale is so much more vast. And it is wrong to equate 14 deaths with 1,400, especially when the 14 were white Europeans and the 1,400 were brown Indians. And never forget this one fact. The youngest child to die at Jolly and Wallabog was a baby, six weeks old. Thank you so much for listening to The Year That Was. Next week, we will continue with our theme of colonies and look at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. This subject has suddenly become very relevant to current events as the news right now is filled with stories about the Kurds. Please subscribe to The Year That Was so you never miss an episode. Visit the website 
www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos and maps. And join us on the Facebook group where we talk about the show. I'm also on Twitter. I want to thank everyone who has left a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm currently at nine reviews. And uh, wouldn't one of you listening right now like to make that a nice round 10? You will receive my endless thanks and appreciation. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.